Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Hi there, how are you going? My name's Brad Koneman. I'm one of the pastors at Anchor City. Thank you for joining us for Anchor Online today. Whether you're joining from Anchor City or Anchor Southwest or joining us for the first time, we're so glad that you're here with us as we continue our series through Exodus. Well, 14 years ago, in 2007, on a lovely summer's day in the Blue Mountains, I stood at the end of the aisle and watched my beautiful bride, Catherine, walk down towards me as we celebrated our wedding day with all of our friends, all of our family, a wonderful day celebrating young love and feasting into the afternoon and evening. We were very young, (laughs) as you can see in that picture, a beautiful celebration of young love. And at the heart of our wedding ceremony were promises that we made to one another. The minister asked me this question. He said, Brad, will you have Catherine as your wife to live together according to God's law? Will you give her the honour due to her as your wife and forsaking all others, love and protect her? as long as you both shall live. And I said with a loud voice, yes, I will. On that day, Catherine and I affirmed our commitment to one another in promises to love one another until the day that we die. And it's our commitment to those promises that sustains the love in our marriage. Today, as we open up Exodus 24, we come to what is kind of like Israel's wedding ceremony, where they tie the knot in their their relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in the covenant ceremony that we see today, they express their commitment to live as God's special people in his ways of love. And my hope for us today, as we open Exodus 24, is that we will appreciate afresh the dynamics of our relationship with God that's established by grace but enjoyed by obedience. And that we as God's people, that we would renew our commitment to living in God's ways of love. So before we begin, let's pray together and ask that God would speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Father, you declare in Psalm 19 that your law is perfect, reviving the soul that your law gives joy to our hearts and light to our eyes. And so as we look into your law today, we ask that you would revive our souls, that you would give joy to our hearts and light to our eyes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we work through Exodus 24, I hope some of you have your journals there and are taking notes as we look at this covenant ceremony of tying the knot, we're going to move through three movements in the, in the passage of Exodus 24. And the three movements are these, if you're taking notes. First, the engagement in verses 1 and 2. Second, the ceremony in verses 4 to 8. And third, the reception in verses 9 to 11. So first up, we're looking at the engagement, verses 1 and 2. Well, just like a couple has a long history of friendship, dating, and engagement before their wedding, the same is true with God and the people of Israel. They've got a long history stretching way back before the covenant that they make at Sinai. 
So let us ask, who is the God that Israel is engaged to? Well, first, I want, to, I want us to see that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a God of grace. Yahweh is a God of grace. You see, the covenant that we see here in Exodus 24, it, the covenant doesn't establish the relationship that God has with his people. God has been committed to this people for hundreds of years before this, going way back to creation, but especially way back to the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis. The promise that God would bless Abraham and his family and through them bless the whole world. And God has been working over hundreds of years to fulfill that promise. God has been committed to this people. And here we are at Mount Sinai, and Exodus 24 is actually kind of the final part of a scene that starts in Exodus 19, where the people come to God at Mount Sinai, and in Exodus chapter 20, God kind of shows them the terms of the covenant that he's going to make with them. And then in Exodus 24 that we're looking at today, it's the covenant ceremony where the people respond to God. And the first words that God says as he tells them the terms of the covenant in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, verse 2. The very first words that God says are these. He says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So before God tells them to do anything in the law, he reminds them what he's already done for them by delivering them from slavery. God has already made them his people by pure grace. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. It wasn't because they were a big, important nation in their own right. No, God chose them simply because he loves them. The covenant ceremony, it does not establish the relationship that God has with his people, but it does outline for them what it looks like for them to live as God's people, to follow his ways of love and to fulfill their vocation as a kingdom of priests to bring God's blessing to the nations. So, Who is the God that Israel is engaged to? First, God, Yahweh is a God of grace. Second, Yahweh is a God of holy fire. And we see this right at the start of our passage today. Exodus 24 verse 1 says this, Then he said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance But Moses alone is to approach Yahweh. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up to him. And so right at the start of this ceremony, we see that there's a distance between God and his people. Only Moses can come close to him. God's holiness is like a fire. Get too close and you'll get burned. In fact, at the start of this covenant scene in Exodus chapter 19, it seems that Mount Sinai itself is burning, is on fire. Have a look at this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. Kind of reminds me of a scene from Dante's Peak, the 90s classic disaster thriller movie where a volcano erupts on a village. Uh, The whole mountain is on fire and the people are trembling in fear and the, the mountain itself is trembling. 
Who is the God that Israel is engaged to? He's a God of holy fire. His holiness demands and deserves our exclusive worship and covenant faithfulness, just as he is fiercely faithful to us, his people. The God that Israel is engaged to is a God of grace and a God of holy fire. And it's interesting because often we want to separate those two. There's kind of a long tradition throughout church history where people will say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's the angry, fire-breathing God. I'll just have the God of Jesus, thanks, the God of love and mercy and grace. But the Bible writers always hold them together, that the God of Israel and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is at one and the same time the God of holy fire and the God of grace. And we've got to keep them together. So that is who Israel is engaged to, the God of grace, the God of holy fire. Now the special day arrives. We come to the ceremony in verses 4 to 8, where Israel responds to the terms of the covenant that Yahweh himself had detailed in chapters 20 to 23. And in the ceremony, there's a number of symbolic elements that we're going to see. So the first symbol in the ceremony are 12 stone pillars that represent the 12 tribes of Israel in verse 4. These are physical symbols in the ceremony of the parties of the covenant. So it's the 12 tribes of Israel that's entering into a covenant with Yahweh. And it's kind of like, you know, in a peace agreement between nations when the leaders kind of stand there and shake hands, they've got the flags behind them representing the parties that are entering the, the agreement. So, so too here, the 12 stone pillars represent the 12 tribes of Israel that are entering the covenant. The second symbol that we see is an altar, an animal sacrifice. So in verses 4 and 5, Moses built an altar at the foot of the mountain and he sends young Israelite men and they offer burnt offerings and sacrifice young bulls to Yahweh. Now, we live in 21st century Sydney, a modern society. It's not often that you, say, walk down the street of walk down the middle of King Street and see animals being sacrificed on the side of the road to our gods. Um, this idea of animal sacrifice and blood, it all seems very primitive and foreign to us. So what's the deal with this? What's the, the deal with this altar, the animal sacrifice, the blood? Well, in the ancient world, blood symbolises life. And the sacrifice here at the ceiling of the covenant it represents the consequences for breaking the covenant. And that's very typical of ancient Near Eastern treaties, that there'll be a visible demonstration of the consequences of what will happen if you break the terms of the covenant. It's like, if we break this covenant, then what happens to this animal will happen to us, which is death. It's the natural consequence of walking away from the Lord of life. Now, obviously, if you're at all familiar with the Bible's story and the history of Israel, you will know that Israel, both its individuals and Israel as a nation, Israel will go on to repeatedly break the terms of the covenant over the coming years, decades, centuries, uh, in many ways. And so the other thing that the animal sacrifices represent is not just the consequences of breaking the covenant, but they actually foreshadow what is to come in the Torah, what we will see in the book of Leviticus, which is the provision of atonement for sin. By the shedding of blood, the guilt of the people is covered so that they can remain in relationship with their God of holy fire. So 
12 stone pillars, an altar and animal sacrifices, and thirdly, the sprinkling of blood. So in verses 6 and 8, we see that Moses collects the blood of the animals. He sprinkles half of the blood on the altar, and the other half he sprinkles on the people. Again, a bit weird in our context, but that's what happens. This is the blood of the covenant, Moses says, that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So blood, in, in addition to atoning for sin, was also used for the consecration of priests, which we're going to go on to see in Exodus chapter 29, if you keep on reading. And so the blood here is being used to consecrate the people, to set them apart for a purpose. Back in chapter 19, verse 6, God said that his purpose in the covenant was that the people would be a kingdom of priests through whom he was going to bless the world. And so the sprinkling of blood on the people is consecrating them for their missional priestly purpose of bringing God's blessing to all the world. And so we see here in this ceremony various signs and symbols. And these are also important parts of our ceremonies Symbols and signs demonstrate abstract theological realities and help us to embody our life of faith. Take, for example, my wedding ring. This physical ring on my finger is a symbol and a reminder of my covenant commitment to Catherine to love her and protect her until the day that we die. Take, for example, the physical symbol of water for baptism, which symbols our spiritual new birth and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Take, for example, the physical symbols of the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper, which represent Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us, a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. These physical symbols and signs are vital also for us to, to embody our life of faith and ground some of these abstract theological principles that theological realities that are just vital to the gospel. And so we see them also here in Israel's covenant ceremony. The final thing that we see in this ceremony are the vows in verse 7 and also in verse 3, where the people of Israel pledge their commitment to Yahweh. In verse 7, we see that Moses reads the book of the covenant, presumably all the words that God has spoken in the terms of the covenant from chapters 20 to 23, which includes the Ten Commandments that Arnaldo looked at last week and all the laws and ordinances that follow from there. The people respond to the terms of the covenant and express their commitment to keep it. Just like in my wedding vows on that day back in 2007, I yelled out with a loud voice, yes, I will, I will love Catherine. So too, the people of Israel declare in a loud voice, yes, we will. We will do everything that Yahweh has said. We will obey. And don't you love just the simplicity of their obedience? That there's a determination in their hearts that whatever God has said, we're going to do it. What exactly is it that Israel is committing to? Well, you can go back yourself and read through those four chapters, 20 to 23, to see it in detail. But I think Jesus sums up the terms of the covenant really well as he sums up the law of God with the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That the terms of the covenant, in summary, are the ways of love. 
And the two great commandments, they really reflect the structure of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, the first four commandments come under loving the Lord your God with all your heart. So, you know, you, sh- you shall have no other gods before me. Do not make idols, exclusive worship of Yahweh. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The, the, the back half of the Ten Commandments, uh, the final six, uh, can be put under the title of loving your neighbour as yourself. Do not have adultery. Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not... Uh, all the others. You can remember them. Um, they're all summed up under those two headings of loving the Lord your God with all, all your heart and loving your neighbour as yourself. And so what is it Israel is committing to? First, they're committing to love God with all their heart. And so as you read through the, through the terms of the covenant in Exodus 20 to 23, you see that it governs the social life of Israel to be one of worship. It regulates festivals throughout the year, offering so that in their calendars, the people have, you know, written in, we're worshipping Yahweh, we're remembering who he is, what he's done for us, and we're going to give him the honour that he deserves. So first, they're committing to love the Lord their God with all their heart. But they're also committing to love their neighbour as their self. And as you read through Exodus 20 to 23, you see many of the laws written down there uh, uh, to help the social life of Israel to be one of justice and equality, of honesty and accountability. And that it's especially concerned to protect the weak and the vulnerable in the society. And so you'll see their laws about retribution and restitution, what to do uh, when there's injury or loss. But you'll see there also a real concern that Israel must not mistreat the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the slave, all of the weak and vulnerable. And in an ancient Near Eastern society that is highly patriarchal, that sees women and children and slaves and foreigners as second-class citizens having no rights, these law codes are absolutely revolutionary in the ancient world. The Hebrew religion was revolutionary for its time because it conceived of all people, regardless of your gender, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your social standing or your capability, all people were made in the image of God and so had inherent dignity, value and worth. And that is enshrined in the Hebrew law codes to protect the weak and the vulnerable. And it was absolutely revolutionary for its day. And it continues to undergird much of our modern law systems and especially our human rights laws today. And so as we think about what Israel is committing to, as they express their commitment, yes, we will do whatever Yahweh has said, what are they committing to? They're committing to a life of love, a life where they will love the Lord their God with all their heart, a life where they will love their neighbour as themselves. This covenant ceremony, it celebrates the relationship between God and Israel that is established by grace but enjoyed by obedience, as Israel fulfills its purpose of being a kingdom of priests through whom God will bless the whole world. And so after every great wedding ceremony comes the reception, the best bit, right? The after party. And so too here. Uh, The covenant ceremony ends with the reception, a feast, and there's a special guest of honour. Let's see who turns up at this after party to end all after parties. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 
the 70 elders of Israel went up. And who did they see? They saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God didn't raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. This is an after party, a reception where God himself turns up as the guest of honour. The elders of Israel saw the invisible God with their own eyes. Now, the Bible is clear that God is spirit. We cannot see the invisible God. We live by faith, not sight. God reveals himself through what he's made and through what he's said, through his word incarnate and his word inscripturated. And one day, the promise is that we will see him face to face. But here, at the Mount of Sinai, at this crucial point in the story of God, where God enters into a lasting covenant with his people, God shows up visibly. And what does he look like? Well, all that we're told in Exodus 24 is that he stands on a pavement of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. Maybe that represents God's beauty, his purity, his royalty, God, the guest of honour, turning up at his feast. Fellowship and feasting with the people that he's entered relationship with. It's interesting because right at the start of this chapter, do you remember there was distance between the people? Moses alone can come up the mountain. But but here, God is with his people. He doesn't raise his hand against them, it says. No, he feasts with them. The elders of the people of Israel, they eat and drink and enjoy fellowship with God. Because that is what the covenant is about. The covenant here is not, it's not about keeping the law and doing the right thing. The covenant is about relationship. It's about the fellowship with God for which we were made. Now, 21st century Sydney, we are not Old Testament Israel and we are not under the old covenant that was made at Sinai 3,000 years ago. These words, they apply uniquely to Israel as a nation state, specifically at this point of time in history. But the dynamics of the relationship that we see here forming between God and his people under the old covenant, this old covenant, it points forward to a new covenant that God will make, not just with ethnic Israel, but that is open to all people everywhere, regardless of our ethnicity. The old covenant that God made at Sinai, it points forward to a new covenant that's sealed not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The old covenant at Sinai, it points forward to a new covenant that is likewise established by pure grace, a dramatic act of rescue where God himself steps onto the scene to deliver us from slavery. Not slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin, so that we might be his special people, that we might be his children. This old covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, it points forward to a new covenant where we too have covenant responsibilities to live out our vocation as a kingdom of priests, to embrace God's ways of love enshrined in his law. It reminds us that Grace 
and obedience always go together, but we've got to get the order right. Grace always leads to obedience. Our faith always results in works, not the other way around. This old covenant that God made with his people Israel at Sinai, it points forward to a new covenant that is described as a marriage between Jesus and his church, where we as God's people enjoy intimacy with God, friendship with God, the fellowship and relationship for which we were made. This old covenant at Sinai, it points forward to a new covenant where all people are invited to the wedding feast, the reception in the kingdom of God, the after party to end all after parties where we feast together in the very presence of God. Anchor Church, while these events at Sinai happened 3,000 years ago, they describe so much of the story that we're invited into and indeed that we are part of. What a privilege it is for us to have relationship with God, our maker, the God of Israel, the God of holy fire, the God of grace, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer for us today is that we will appreciate afresh our relationship with the living God that's established by grace and enjoyed by obedience and that we will embrace with wholehearted commitment to live in God's ways of love. We love you. God bless you. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy that when we were far from you, that you came for us, you rescued us, you delivered us and you made us your people. I pray for us today that you would renew our commitment to living in your way, to living in your way of love. I ask that you would give each of us a deep joy in obedience, that you'd fill our hearts with love for you and for our neighbour so that we might fulfil your purpose for us to be a kingdom of priests that brings your blessing to the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.